Wonderful. Isn't that an awesome song? To declare that uh, Jesus Christ is our living hope. And uh, I, I love singing that one. Um, if you're visiting here uh, tonight, you've landed in Romans chapter 14. Um, we've been working through Romans for the past six months, probably. It's been quite a while, and we're, we're close to the end of that. Uh, the reason that um, we did the Roman series was, was partly practical. We started preaching in the morning, and when I discovered I was down a pastor, uh, it was easier for me to uh, repeat some sermons. That was one of the reasons. But uh, a far greater reason that I chose to take the night service in the past six months through Romans was that I kind of wanted to do everything that I could to put the congregation here in the best possible place so that when I kind of hand over to the new pastor... I could, I could feel that um, I'd done the best that I could to, to, you know, lead these people well and to teach them well. And so therefore I thought there's nothing better than I, that I could do than to lead these guys through Romans. Um, because Romans is just this incredible uh, declaration of the gospel of grace. That we are saved by grace and grace alone. And uh, if you're here tonight and you've never been in church or, or you don't know too much about the Bible or anything like that... Um, this book of Romans, which sits at actually quite near the back, um, is this incredible letter written almost 2,000 years ago where a guy called the Apostle Paul, a man named Paul, uh, he wrote to a church in Rome and he spent uh, the first 11 chapters of this, of this letter explaining to people who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And if you've never read uh, Romans, if you've never read the Bible, Romans is a pretty good place to start. You could open it up and you will read about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And there's nothing more important, I think, in life than to discover the answer to those questions. Who is Jesus and what has he done? But we're now towards the end of that. We're into the uh, more practical section of Romans. And so uh, we're going to read Romans chapter 14, uh, verses 1 to 13. And uh, if you have uh, your Bible, you could open it up or on your phone. And if not, I think we're going to have it up on the screen for you to read through. Uh, Romans chapter 14. Except the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. Strange <laughs> verse right there. The one who's, who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life 
so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Uh, It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge me. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So uh, I think uh, we can all see the, uh, the, passage, the verse from this passage that we need to hone in on tonight, which is, uh, which is verse 2. One's person, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Uh, I, you know, as soon as I read that, I just went straight out and bought myself some steak and cooked it up as a sign of my obedience to God. No, I'm just joking. Just joking. It's, uh, we're going to understand this in context. When we read that, you think, what is this passage about? Uh, we've got these incredible passages of Scripture in Romans. And then you come to this and it's talking about eating meat and eating vegetables. And you think, what does this, does this really have great significance and power? I want to suggest that it's incredibly important. We know all of Scripture is God-breathed. And this is no, uh, there's no exception here. This is incredibly important what this is talking about. Really, the question this passage, I think, is asking is this. How do we all get along when we are all so different? How do we all get along when we are all so different? How do we ensure there is unity in the church of vision and mission and purpose and unity of spirit when every church, and certainly this is a good example of it, is made up of people from different backgrounds, different uh, uh, traditions, different faith traditions, with different values, different priorities, different theological uh, backgrounds, and different things that they're passionate about, and different ways of perceiving the world. And uh, how do we all get along in the midst of that? Some of us have grown up in radically different churches to others, and some of us have not grown up in churches at all. How do we fit this together? You know, when there is uh, unity in the church, there is incredible power for God and potential for God to do a transforming work and to, to, to lead that church into effective mission that blesses its wider community, sees many people come to know Jesus. But when there is a church that is divided, I don't think there's too much else that slows down the mission of the church than division and disunity. When there is division, a church, instead of looking outward, gets completely drawn in to be inward looking, dealing with its own stuff, caught up so much energy and so much Stress, stress and so much heartache can get used up in this inward process of trying to resolve disunity and conflict. God has given us a mission to reach out with the good news of Jesus and yet disunity can cause us to totally take our eye off the ball. And this passage is kind of asking, well, what do we do when one person has a particular practice or custom or tradition that they think is really important but the other person thinks well I don't think that's important at all how do we resolve that situation you know I've seen in my life so many examples of 
conflict over what this passage would describe as disputable matters. Uh, uh, let me give you a couple of examples of that. The first is when I was growing up in a church, it was a, it was, it was a very traditional uh, church in Clare, Clare Uniting Church I grew up in. And like a lot of churches, there were pews and at the front there were some choir stalls and in the very middle, front and centre, there sat what? Not a pulpit. Well, there was a pulpit. That was up high, and down below it was was an organ, an organ, the sacred organ. And uh, there was a lady that played the organ. For some reason, the organ faced with, so she had her back to everyone. I don't know why that was. And we sang, uh, we sang hymns. Every morning when we came in, there would be a little thing, and someone would have put up the numbers from the hymn book, and every song we sang was a hymn from the hymn book. And then some people came along, and what did they want to sing? Choruses. They wanted to sing choruses that they'd heard in some other church or somewhere, some, uh, some you know, devious place they'd heard choruses, and they wanted to bring this new way into the church. And so as, a, as a, probably a 10-year-old kid, I literally observed the minister, the pastor of that church, trying to resolve the issue with a group of people who wanted choruses and a group of people who only wanted hymns. And I thought to myself, who would ever be a pastor? <laughs> <laughs> and so we used to have 15 minutes as people were coming in, the chorus people got to play on their keyboard and sing their choruses for the 15 minutes before church proper started. And then we'd just have the organ. But then the, minute the pastor began to sneak in. So then we'd have like three hymns and one chorus. And then it became two hymns and two choruses. But what would happen is the organ lady was playing the choruses so she'd play them deliberately out of tune so no one could sing along <laughs> this is what happened and division and disunity happened and it caused a lot of heartache and in the end the organist I think left the church and ceased going to church at all because she just refused to embrace a different style of music I remember at my uh, first church where I was a pastor one Sunday we had some people who were Fijian in our church and they had some some young children and and they wanted to do a, a song a Fijian song in the church service and and the pastor said okay you can do that and so they stood up and they they sang their their song and uh they were reasonably, um, you know, grass skirts and uh, they, they were just young kids and uh, the girls had uh, coconuts as, as the upper half. Um, so that was it. Uh, but they were kids. And, um, but anyway, uh, most of the church thought that was okay. Um, there were a couple of people, including an elder, who thought it was disgraceful and absolutely couldn't believe that the rest of the elders thought it was okay. So we had this issue and it caused division and it, and it sucked energy and, and it again resulted in, uh, sadly, someone leaving the church over that, over that one song. Uh, balloons in church I've seen. Someone recently told me that they grew up in a church and it was a brethren church, exclusive brethren, where the men sat at the front and the women and children had to sat, sit at the back because the men were there to, to listen and hear the teaching and how dare they be distracted by a child. Uh, so the children at the back, disputable matters, uh, all these kind of things that cause division. And uh, we need to be clear that there are things in the Bible that are indisputable, many things, many things in the, in the Bible that are very clear, matters essential to salvation, 
matters of choices and action that are clearly godly or ungodly, honoring to God or dishonoring, faithful to the scriptures or unfaithful. But we also need to know not everything is black and white. Not everything is, is spelled out in scripture. Again, I, I remember once in my second church where I was a pastor, I was going to bring in balloons on a Sunday. On the Easter Sunday, I was going to have balloons in church. Who would have thought? I got told, oh, we tried that once before. Don't go there. <laughs> wow. I, I can't see the bit about balloons in the service. Maybe it's tucked away in Leviticus somewhere deep. Um, all these things became matters of conflict. They led to division. They drew energy and attention of leadership away from the mission of the church. And mostly it was just very sad that such matters could cause such sadness and conflict. And I believe not only is it sad for those in the church, I believe it grieves God's heart when brothers and sisters start having a go at each other over stuff that they shouldn't. So what are the disputable matters of the past and what are some of the disputable matters of the present? Well, let me give you some of the past. Should, uh, well, here's, here are some of the things that, that have been in churches. Women should wear hats in church. Men should wear suits to church. Women should always wear dresses to church. You must not wear a hat to church. Hymns are the only songs sung in church and organs the only instrument that should be played in church. We should have a choir who wear robes and sit up the front. You should not raise your hands in worship or sing choruses or clap. Christians should not go to the movies or the theatre or play cards on Sunday or sport or, or uh, do anything competitive on a Sunday and should not listen to secular music or read secular book. And Baptists shouldn't dance or drink or laugh laugh or smile too much. <laughs> so there we go. You laugh at those. Now I'm going to read some of the disputable matters of the present. You might laugh at these until I read the one that you think is not disputable. But anyway, <laughs> we'll see how we go. Uh, particular views about creation or about the end times or about how we resolve the issue of human free will and the sovereignty of God, spiritual gifts, Healings and miracles, how God speaks to us today, prophecy. What role does Israel have to play in God's future? Shouldn't have mentioned that one. Um, what songs should we sing? What sort of should a service look like? How often should we have communion? Should we focus on just evangelism or is social justice part of the church's mission? Should all, all sermons be verse by verse exegesis? Is topical series okay or not? How long should a service go for? How long should a sermon go for? You probably think shorter rather than longer. What role should women have in leadership and teaching? Uh, whether the Bible reading should happen before the sermon starts or in it? Can people dance during worship? And then there's decisions outside of church. Some Christians hold particular views about should we send your kids to a Christian school or a public school or a private school or homeschool? What age should you let your kids watch certain movies? What sort of car is acceptable for a Christian to drive or home acceptable for a Christian to have? And what political party should a Christian vote for? Well, we all know the answer to that. Of course it's... No, I'm not going to say. <laughs> there we go. So I'll just unpack each of those and the correct answer to them. No. You know, some of us hold different views and we'll hold different views on that, whether you're from another church and you're visiting or whether you're part of this church. Do you know that even within our eldership, we have people who hold different views on some of the things that I mentioned? Do you realise that? Within our eldership, we hold 
have people, elders with different views. Within our staff team, we have people who hold different views on different things. And we have different people with different preferences, not just belief, but preferences about some of those things. And, uh, and there are some things we just absolutely make very clear. And if you become a member of the church, we say, this is what we believe as a church. And if you want to be a member of this church, we actually need you to agree to say, these things we take a stand on and we will never bend on these things. But there's actually a whole lot of other stuff, whether it's belief or customs or practices, that we recognize that there's differences in. In fact, there's some of these issues. Let's talk about the sovereignty of God and the free will of people and how you put all this together, that the greatest evangelical biblical scholars wrestle with and come up with different conclusions on. So if there's great scholars who have one view and others who have slightly different or different views and they're wrestling with that and discussing it, then I think it's quite reasonable for us to recognise that it's okay for us to wrestle and reach different conclusions on some of those things. Let's look at what the actual passage says because I've talked a lot about uh, contemporary times. Um, the passage here which I've read, the, the main point is actually in verse 1 to 3, except the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters and uh, verse 3 says the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does and really there's three key points that come out of this passage very easy to remember uh, that the strong are not to despise or condemn the weak and the weak are not to judge the strong and we should not argue or quarrel over things that don't really matter. So in this passage, who is the weak and who is the strong? Okay, so the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, as we've been talking about for many weeks. And Paul, Paul is speaking into their situation. And the context here is probably that we have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, that is non-Jewish Christians, and they are in the same church. And some of the Jewish Christians have come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, but they are continuing to hold on to the practices of their Jewish culture and heritage. And other Gentile Christians are not following these practices. And also perhaps some of the Jewish Christians have given up those practices and decided that they don't, they're not required to follow them as Christians. And so Paul gives two examples that, that highlight this. One is about some eat meat and some eat only vegetables. That's verse 2. And in verse 5, one person considers one day more sacred than the other, but another person considers every day alike. And so Paul says this, he says the weak here, the weak in his mind are actually those who are adhering to all these traditions and customs. In fact, the interesting part is he describes the weak as those who are really devout and following all these extra practices. So they're probably the ones who thought they were the strong, and Paul actually somewhat controversially describes them as the weak. And so the weak are those who, you could say, have not been able to fully accept that in Christ, through Jesus, we are saved by grace and grace alone. There are actually no customs, traditions, and ceremonial requirements in addition to that that are required for salvation. You could also say the weak are those who are drawn into doing other things, thinking they're requirements for a full and correct Christian life that, that in fact are not. And you could also say the weak are those overly influenced by other people who put these rules and requirements 
in place for Christians that are in fact not requirements from Scripture. And so it's possible that some of the Gentiles have begun following the practices uh, because of the influence of people. And the strong then are those who know that in Christ we are saved and redeemed and set free through faith in Jesus and there is nothing that we can add uh, or need to add to gain salvation. It's received as a gift. The strong are known that the gospel has set them free and that we can enjoy all that God has given to enjoy life without man-made religious rules and regulations. Now, you might hear that and go, well, hold on. Does that mean, hey, we're just set free to do anything? Well, if you've been tracking through Romans with us, you'll know for sure this doesn't mean there isn't anything called sin, that there isn't anything that's not honouring to God. Of course there is. And if we go back to Romans chapter 6, uh, in response to the gospel, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So two things are happening. Uh, some people who, um, who didn't do these things, who didn't follow the practices, were despising and condemning and maybe even mocking those who did. And then there were others who were following these customs who were judging those who weren't doing them. Okay? So, what's a, what's a, so Paul says, the strong are not to despise or condemn the weak. The weak are not to judge the strong. And all of us should avoid arguing over things that don't really matter. It's kind of simple. How does that apply today? Let me give a, a practical application. I'll, I'll apply it to the context of music worship, to worship on a Sunday, okay? You know, I heard someone that went to a Hillsong Conference and the, the, the people there had called, talked about the different departments in their church. There was the youth department, the children's department, uh, the care department, and then there was the war department, okay? That's worship, right? That's where all the battles are fought. Um, anyway, um, so... You know, in a church, we could have two groups of people, right? We could have those who, when we start singing, they love to raise their hands. They love to start moving. They love to rock back and forth a bit. And uh, let's call them, for, for, for just a summary, uh, to give them a name, let's call them the swayers, okay? <laughs> so there's the swayers. When the music starts, they are into it. But then there's another group of people. And when the music starts, this is how they go. You know, you give me joy down deep in my heart. You know, um, we'll call them the statues, okay? The statues. Now, you're just hearing right now, you might be a, by nature a swayer or you might be by nature more of a statue. Um, but what can happen in church is that the, the, when the, the statues are there and the statues look across at the swayers and what are they thinking? They're thinking, oh, these people are just drawing attention to themselves. They're, they're thinking, these people are a distraction to my worship experience. <laughs> you know, they're just a bit over the top. Um, and they're, they're, this is emotionalism. They're getting carried away by emotions. Meanwhile, the, the, the swayers, as they're swaying, they look around and they see the statue and they're going, what are they saying? They're going, these people are just not filled with the Spirit. You know, they're just cold. They're just, they're just, uh, they're just um, lacking passion. You know, where's their enthusiasm? We're singing, about the, we're singing about joy and gospel. Where's the joy in these people? Now, what's the problem? 
What a ridiculous way to judge people. The person who, who just loves to stand there and doesn't like to raise their hands or be just demonstrative in any way, why should they judge the person who loves to raise their hands? That's ridiculous. Equally, the person who does love to worship in that way and, and feels they have that freedom, why should they judge? And how, you know, how can they look at someone else and by the way that they're singing decide how alive they are to God and how, how the passion that's in their heart to follow Jesus? What this passage would say is just allow one another to worship as we want. Let's just treat each other with respect. Let's just figure out how to get along. Um, that's really the heart of this passage. Don't, don't dis, uh, despise or condemn those who do differently to you. Don't judge those who do differently. And let's avoid arguing over things that don't matter. The message version is a uh, disputable matter whether I should read the message version. Um, <laughs> the message version says it this way. Welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. Okay. Uh, verse 6 says, uh, says this, uh, Whoever regards one day special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they um, uh, give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord. Basically what it's saying is, the key question is, is this person seeking to bring glory and honour to the Lord? Now, if they're doing something that's completely sinful and they're doing it to give glory and honour to the Lord, that, that's another issue, right? But if they're, you know, worshipping one way, if they're doing something, if they've got some particular uh, practice um, and they're doing it to give glory to the Lord, then that's okay. A few years ago, we, we had someone who used to come to the church in the morning service, just a teenage girl, and she thought it was right to cover her head when she came into church, right? She used to always wear a scarf. That was, that was her interpretation of Scripture. I, I wouldn't agree with that. But I wasn't going to tell her she's got to take off her scarf and that she's got it all wrong. She needs to have space to let her figure that out for herself. And that really brings me to three points that I want to bring out of this passage. Okay. Three points and actually then three points and one word for our new pastor. Okay. Where is he? He's gone. He's in the cry room. All right. <laughs> at, least he hasn't, at least he hasn't gone. That's, uh, all right. So here's my three points about this passage. Firstly, I think acceptance should be the defining quality of Christian people. Acceptance should be the defining quality of Christian people. When people walk into a church or when you connect in relationship with people, particularly non-Christian people, what do they receive from us when they come into church? What do they receive from you? How do they feel? Some churches are so focused on wanting to be holy and right and, and, and doing the right thing, that I think when people come in, the first thing they feel is judgment. It is right to follow right practice and to encourage holiness and goodness and, and lives that glorify Jesus. But some churches, the feel that you get when you get in is judgment. Some Christians, the feel that you get from them is judgment. What was Jesus like? What did sinners think of Jesus? What did the people who were really a mess in their lives and doing completely the wrong thing, how did they feel when they encountered Jesus? Well, the answer is they were drawn to him. They were drawn to Jesus. They, they, there was something about Jesus that made them want to go near him, not draw away from him. Does that mean Jesus tolerated sin in sinful people? Of course not. 
But the defining quality of Jesus for sinful people was acceptance. You know? Zacchaeus, you're up the tree. Uh, come down from that tree. Go and get your life sorted. And when you can prove to me that you're holy, then after a period of time when your holiness has been well established in this community, I would like to come to your house for lunch. <laughs> Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for lunch. The woman comes in weeping at Jesus' feet and wiping uh, the tears of her feet with her hair. She's a sinful woman and everyone knows it. And Jesus says, leave. How dare you? I'm a holy person. Go. Get yourself right and then come back. No, Jesus welcomes her. He welcomes her. And it's a transformational welcoming and love. Acceptance should be the defining quality of Christian people. Secondly, uh, I want to say this. We need to know the Word of God and we need to know how to study it and understand it so that we won't be tripped up or led astray. Because what's going to happen is as you go through your life, there are going to be people who come and say, hey, this is, is not a disputable matter. This is an indisputable matter and you should be doing this. Or worse still, They'll take a, 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 a non-disputable matter and they'll say, oh, this doesn't really matter. This is, this is disputable. Or they'll twist the, disputable, the non-disputable matter. Okay? We've got to know how to make sense of this scripture. Last time I read the Bible, it said that women, if they pray without their head covered, they're dishonoring. Right? Now, we don't practice that. So we, under, we seek to understand scripture in context. And it's important that we do that. If we're not able to understand scripture well, we can easily be led astray when we get a knock on the door from someone who seems to know their Bible very well or from the uni lecturer who wants to try to give us a particular strong view or from the person who's read their Bible to cover to cover and has also read hundreds of articles on the internet and has got a completely different perspective on Jesus. It's very easy to be led astray. Young people... I must say, young adults, I see this all the time, encounter a new teaching. And it's very appealing to them because it might be put across very strongly. They can easily be drawn to it. Are you uh, able to, to, to take a teaching and critique it and look at it from the perspective of the Word of God and make sense of it? It is vital that we keep sowing into you that skill and that you keep hungering to know that more. Because then you're going to be able to figure out what's disputable, what's non-disputable and all of that. Third is, work hard to remain united. Uh, verse 13 to 19 goes on and talks about not putting a, a stumbling block in front of your brother. And it concludes in, in verse 19 with this, with this verse, a great verse. It says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Let's not just kind of like assume it's going to happen. Let's make every effort. Let's make every effort. As, as, as elders and pastors, we often talk about the need for unity. That does not mean that at every elders meeting, the, the elders need to agree with everything I say or, or have everyone agree with what everyone else says. It means that we can wrestle with things, and, 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 but do that with a spirit of unity. We need to be able to walk out of the room saying we're brothers and sisters, we love each other, and we've come to reach a place where we're going to walk forward in unity. And we need to do that as a church. Uh, scripture says a house divided itself will not stand. Okay. As a pastor, um, 
I said this when I preached in the morning, I'll say it now. As a pastor, it's appropriate because it's Nick's commissioning night. When Mel and I came into this church almost eight years ago, we have found that throughout this whole time, this church has given us the freedom to be ourselves. It's never made us try to fit into any kind of mould. Uh, it's never made us say we've got to dress a certain way, preach a certain way, lead a certain way, be this kind of pastor, or for Mel to have to be this kind of pastor's wife. We've been able to be ourselves. We've been accepted in that sense, in those non-disputable matters. We're so thankful for the church, for the acceptance and grace that they've shown us. Tonight, Nick has been commissioned as a pastor and Emily's coming on board and Josh. We need to let them be themselves, minister in their own way, preach in their own way, lead in their own way, not with compar comparing with me or with Kurt or with anyone. They're going to have their own style and we've got to love them and accept them in that way. And the other thing is that I believe this church is wonderfully accepting of people. And I've seen that in over eight years. May we continue to be a church that absolutely adheres to scripture and holds that, but accepts anyone who wants to walk in and is seeking and wanting to know more. Let's love people. Final word for Nick. This will be the only sermon. Is he back? He's at the back of the room. He's, he's like a moving target. Um, this will be the only sermon where I, I particularly identify you and, and speak to you, um, so you can relax. Um, I reckon being a pastor is like this. Uh, I sometimes liken it to this illustration. It's like being a little bit like you're entrusted to be the captain of a ship, right? There's lots of people given lots of different roles, and every single role is equally valuable and equally needed. Someone's there to raise the sail, someone's muscly, and they, they drive those things that, that raise the sail, someone does things with rope, um, someone does other things. I'm not much of a sailor, okay? But I do know this, the captain has a role of looking at the charts and holding onto the steering wheel. And I found in ministry that one of the, the, the most important gifts that I can give to my church is to, to hold the steering wheel when, when people want to come along and want to kind of take it somewhere that it's not meant to go. And sometimes over disputable matters, someone's going to want to grab that steering wheel. And it's then that you've got to make sure you're grabbing hold of it and say, no, we're going to, we're going to keep going where the Word's telling us, where God's leading. The other even stronger thing is when some people are going to come along and they're going to, over non-disputable, essential matters, is going to want to grab that steering wheel. And that's where you've got to hold on really tight. And we've got to keep pushing forward. But also, uh, you might be the captain of this night service ship, but uh, you don't have to try to create the energy to make it go. Right? God's Holy Spirit fills the sails. It's the Spirit that drives the ship forward. And it's the word that we follow. That's the chart that gives us the direction. So um, I'm going to finish by just saying, um, hold that steering wheel. Allow God to fill the sails, mate. And the future for this congregation, for our church, is going to be awesome if we do that. May we, in conclusion, get back to my three points. May you, uh, as you go out, as you live your life as a believer, may you not despise or condemn 
a brother and sister over a disputable matter. May you not judge someone over a disputable matter and let's avoid arguing over things that don't really matter and let's stick and focus our attention on this gospel message that God has entrusted us with to take that out into the world because God has given us an incredible mission. Let us be united in that mission for the glory of God. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.